0: Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B33 Samiramus. Julia Domna was covered in blood, the blood of her family, the blood of her son. His arms lost their strength and let go of her neck, and his body slid down to the floor. The centurions who'd killed him likely stood transfixed, shocked by the enormity of their crime. Just behind them, Julia saw the man responsible for Geta's death— his own brother, the now sole Roman emperor, Caracalla. The room quickly emptied as Caracalla rushed with his troops to the Praetorian camp. In their wake, the blood-soaked empress was left alone with the mangled corpse of her son. No matter what she'd been through, no matter what she'd done, nothing could have prepared her for the scene. It's hard to know which feeling would have been the most overpowering—regret, grief, or fear. Two factions, two power bases, even a royal palace divided in half, the climax was inevitable in retrospect. Caracalla, supposedly more favored by the army, and Geta, more favored by the senate. As their rivalry grew, a radical proposal was made— to divide up the empire east and west, Geta assumed the role of his ancestor Mark Antony, ruling Egypt and all provinces east of the Bosporus, while Caracalla, like Octavian, would keep the rest. The thought of splitting her husband's legacy drove Julia Domna to tears. It was an admission of failure, and like the arrangement it was modeled on, a likely prelude to civil war. In the end, Caracalla chose assassination instead. Since both brothers were always surrounded by bodyguards, he'd use Julia Domna as an intermediary, agreeing to a summit in her presence. The talks had barely begun when soldiers burst from their hiding place and cut young Geta down. No compromise, no division. The empire would remain united. — with 23-year-old Caracalla reigning supreme. The blood that poured from Geta's wounds was unfortunately just the start. When Caracalla returned from the Praetorians and the Senate, having bought the first and threatened the second, he found his mother being consoled by a small group of Roman noblewomen. This was intolerable. As Caracalla just told everyone, he'd only killed his brother in self defense, and because Geta'd been disrespectful to their mother. With this lie, Caracalla made Julia Domna complicit in the murder, but the new emperor demanded a further sacrifice. One of the ladies present, Fadilla, was the last remaining daughter of Marcus Aurelius and Caracalla asked her how she'd prefer to die. With steely resignation, she removed her jewelry, lay herself down, and ordered her veins to be opened. In Dio's estimation, 20,000 Romans lost their lives in Caracalla's initial purge. Anyone perceived to be a partisan of Geta was killed. His statues were toppled, his coins melted down, and his name and face were chiseled from every monument and inscription. The void left behind was sometimes filled with new titles, granted by Caracalla to Julia Domna. Not just mother of the camps, but also mother of the Augustus, the Senate, and the Fatherland, sometimes just mother of the Roman people. Not that any of it made up for the loss of her actual son. Most of Julia's family made it through the purge unscathed. The main exception was the Praetorian prefect Papinianus, removed from his post after Severus's death and now executed by Caracalla. In contrast, the 46-year-old Sextus Varius Marcellus, the father of Elagabalus, had already been elevated to a unique combined role—acting Praetorian prefect, city prefect, and director of the emperor's private funds. He'd soon be rewarded with further promotions to senator and proconsul of Numidia. Marcellus's father-in-law— 61-year-old Evita Alexianus would also continue to serve, as governor of Dalmatia, Asia, and Mesopotamia. Mass killings aside, Caracalla's reign shaped up about how you might expect. Per his father's maxim, the Senate and people were bled white, with their money given to the legionaries and especially the Praetorians. Actual governance was a bit more complicated. Caracalla trusted no one and tolerated no advisors, but also had no interest in administration. Which meant, from early on, there was really only one person he'd help let him rule the empire. His wise, experienced, and universally revered mother, the Empress Julia Domna. Sometime during the next year, 212 AD, Caracalla made a historic announcement. The Edict of Caracalla declared that all free men of the empire were now full Roman citizens, and all free women had the rights of Roman women. Which sounds like kind of a nice thing to do, so let's all look a little deeper. Since Roman citizens typically paid both additional and greater taxes, the main benefit to Caracalla was more money for the soldiers. But it's also possible that Julia Domna had a stake, extending citizenship to the people of her native Syria. In two thirteen, Rome had a visit by the latest king Abgar of Edessa. Abgar the ninth had taken the throne on the death of his father, Abgar the Great, and just to be safe, had renamed himself Abgar Severus. Caracalla invited him to visit the capital, then, in a replay of Caligula and Ptolemy of Mauritania, had him arrested and likely killed. Caracalla cared very little that Abgar was a Christian, but cared very much that he was richer than God, and both Edessa and its treasury were annexed by Rome. Caracalla spent the rest of 213 fighting the Alamanni, before eventually bribing them into a shaky peace. While on campaign, the emperor took pride in roughing it with the ordinary soldiers. He marched with them, ate with them, dressed like them, and joined them in performing all the basic tasks of the camp. Which was fine, except Caracalla thought doing so somehow made him a good general, as opposed to, you know, studying actual strategy and tactics. As Gibbon points out, Caracalla also missed one critical lesson of his father's. Severus had also lavished money on the legions, but he'd also led them with firmness and authority. Giving them even more money, while acting like just one of the guys, led to lax discipline and the general corrosion of military readiness which, combined with Caracalla's insistence on commanding troops in the field, meant future Roman victories would be a challenge. Speaking of which, in late 213, Caracalla began planning a war against Parthia. Back in 208, the Parthian king the fifth had died, his main legacy being the sacking of Ctesiphon by Severus. His son took the throne as Volgases the Sixth, but shocker, he soon found himself embroiled in a civil war against his younger brother, Artabanus V. And I hope you're sitting down, but Artabanus based his rebellion in the old Median capital of Ecbatana. Caracalla apparently wrote a letter to the Senate, saying, Hey guys, guess what? The Parthian Empire is divided because, get this, two brothers are fighting one another. And really, I can't think of anything more destructive to an empire than two brothers not getting along. So the Parthian Empire just has to be totally weak because, you know, brothers fighting. Which is totally different from the situation Rome just went through because, well, it just is. To their credit, according to Dio, only about half the senators' heads exploded. For the 43-year-old Empress Julia Domna, the campaign meant the chance to return home. Except this time, her sister and her extended family would also be coming along. For the youngest, ten-year-old Elagabalus, and adorable little five-year-old Severus Alexander, it would be their first visit to the east, to Syria, and to their ancestral home of Emesa. Unfortunately, some of Julia's family would no longer be there to greet them. In 210 AD, her cousin Sulpicius had died, shortly after his father, Julia's uncle Iamblichus. Then, more recently, a more tragic blow, when Julia learned that her father had also died. For over fifty years, Julius Basianus had served the sun god Elagabal at his temples in Emesa and Heliopolis. Per tradition, his eldest male heir, Elagabalus, was chosen to succeed him as high priest. For Julia Domna, the journey of 214 must have brought to mind the expedition twenty years earlier against Niger. It's very likely the party even took a similar route, possibly even visiting Perinthos. In a novel twist, Caracalla had ordered the Senate to build a series of elaborate dwellings all along the expected route, pretty much anywhere he might decide to visit. Then, in a signature a-hole move, he refused to stay in any of them, or even give them a second glance, and instead ordered them torn down as he passed. As Dio complains, the sole purpose of their being called into existence was to impoverish us. Arriving in Antioch, Caracalla restored the city to its former role of Syrian provincial capital— at around the same time, Edessa, Doriaropos, Palmyra, and Antioch were all granted colonial status. Before long, Caracalla pulled an Abgar on the Armenians, inviting King Khosrow I and his son to visit, then arresting them the moment they arrived. As you may recall, Kosrov was the son of the V of Parthia making him the brother of both warring Parthian kings. Either way, the Armenians didn't take things lying down, and Caracalla was forced to put down a major uprising. Once things had quieted back down, toward the end of 215, Caracalla decided the time was ripe for a family trip to Egypt. The emperor was apparently a superfan of Alexander, and it even organized a phalanx of 16,000 Macedonians and equipped them all with period weapons and armor. His main interest in Egypt was seeing Alexander's tomb, and the party traveled via Pelusium to the capital of Alexandria. Things did not go well. Along the way, Caracalla got word that the Alexandrines were not big fans— something about his murder of Geta or something silly like that. Anyway, the population was badmouthing him, ridiculing him, and generally acting like rowdy Alexandrines. In response, Caracalla ordered all citizens to remain in their homes, then had his legions armor up and march into the city. The soldiers occupied the streets and rooftops, and then the slaughter began. It's one of those situations where exact numbers are both hard to come by and kind of beside the point. It was a major, major massacre that lasted for days, with a body count likely ranging in the tens of thousands. The city itself was part plundered, part destroyed, and walls were erected to divide it up into sub-districts. Caracalla orchestrated the carnage from the Temple of Serapis, where, he told the Senate, he was spending his time observing religious purity. In early 216, Caracalla left Egypt and made his way back to Antioch. Despite the ugliness in Alexandria, he was still fixated on Alexander, and soon returned his attention to conquering the Parthian Empire. In preparation, he elevated his uncle Avitus Alexianus to both proconsul of Mesopotamia and comus or trusted companion. By this time, the Parthian civil war had pretty much been resolved, with the rebellious younger brother Artabanus v coming out on top. Vologases the sixth was still holed up on the lower Tigris, but would soon be wiped out by Artabanus. Taking a virtue of Alexander's and turning it into a trick, Caracalla proposed a marriage between himself and Artabanus's daughter. According to Herodian, Caracalla laid it on thick, saying that only in a Parthian princess could he find an equal match. He also touted the benefits of an alliance, noting that With the knockout combination of Roman infantry and Parthian cavalry, neither side would need to fear barbarian tribes ever again. It's unclear what Julia Domna thought. On the one hand, as a Syrian, she knew the Parthians well, and may have relished the prospect of being a new Olympias, not to mention wielding royal authority across two powerful empires— On the flip side, a new wife was always a potential rival, and the Parthians were well-versed in backstabbing and intrigues. Either way, it was pretty much academic, since Caracalla never had any intention of following through. According to Dio, Artabanus flat-out refused the offer, and Caracalla used the snub as a pretext for war but Herodian's version is much more interesting. After initially refusing, Artabanus finally agreed and invited Caracalla to hold the wedding in Parthia. In response, Caracalla set out from Antioch via Nisibis and Singara toward Artabanus's power base of Ecbatana. Meanwhile, in Antioch, Julia Domna was entrusted with overall management of the empire. Dio notes that Caracalla inscribed her name with many praises in his letters to the Senate, mentioning it in the same connection as his own and that of his armies, and mentions that she greeted publicly all the foremost men, just as her son did. But Dio also notes that in no matters did Caracalla heed his mother, though she gave him much excellent advice. Either way, Julia was likely surprised to learn of the massive slaughter at Ecbatana. Riding with his military escort, along the virtual red carpet laid out by Artabanus, caracalla eventually arrived at the plain outside the city, a well-known meeting place from ancient Median times. The Parthian royals were decked out in all their finery— and had put on a lavish banquet for the bride and groom. But noting that the Parthian horse archers had set aside their bows and sent their horses off to graze, Caracalla ordered his soldiers to attack. There is no mention of respective numbers, but the Romans clearly had the element of surprise, if only because it was such a horrific breach of protocol. Artabanus and a few companions managed to escape, but most of those present were captured or killed, including, very likely, Artabanus's daughter. The Parthian horses were killed or driven off to prevent any retaliatory pursuit. Caracalla then looted the wedding banquet, rounded up a large number of captives, and headed off west, burning towns and villages as he went. Dio notes that he damaged a large section of the country around Media and sacked many citadels. As a fun bonus, Caracalla captured the city of Arbella and desecrated the graves of the Adiabene kings. Then it was back across the Tigris to Nisibis, where he celebrated his victory with some chariot racing and lion hunting. Relax, Caracalla, you've earned it. Hearing the news back in Antioch, Julia Domna was likely appalled, less at the slaughter itself than at kicking the Parthian hornet's nest without any follow-up plan. Caracalla likely thought of himself as Alexander, or at least Severus, skillfully leading a powerful army against a weak and divided foe. But Julia well knew that her son was not her husband, the Parthians were no longer divided, and Artabanus was unlikely to take this particular outrage lying down. By late 216, reports had reached Antioch that the Parthian king was gathering a huge army for the express purpose of revenging himself on the Romans. Caracalla was forced to plan for imperial defense, though, as mentioned earlier, this was easier said than done. For his command center, he chose the city of Edessa, while Julia Domna stayed behind in Antioch. In the spring of 217, Julia received a fairly disturbing letter from Rome's city prefect Maternianus. A seer in Africa was spreading a prophecy that one of the Praetorian prefects, Marcus Apellius Macrinus, would succeed Caracalla to the throne. Julia knew from her own experience that prophecies could be self-fulfilling, and forwarded the letter on to her son. But in early April, Julia got word that Caracalla was dead. The emperor had been traveling from Edessa to Haran to visit the temple of the moon god Sin. Long-time listeners may remember Haran as both the place where the Neo-Assyrians made their next-to-last stand and where the mother of the last Babylonian king Nabonidus had served the moon god as high priestess. Later, as Cari, it was also the place where the Roman triumvir Marcus Crassus had been utterly destroyed by the Parthians. And, side note, I got the chance to visit both Edessa and Haran just about a year ago, and let me tell you, that was pretty freaking amazing. Anyway, on April 8th, Caracal had been relieving himself in a roadside ditch when he was knifed in the back by a common soldier. The assassin was killed, but after that, no one had the slightest idea what to do. The Parthians were still coming, and no matter how loyal the army was to the Severans, Rome needed military leadership, and fast. The most promising candidate was the elder Praetorian prefect, a man named Adventus. For 47-year-old Julia Domna, this was an insane amount to process. Like with Geta, she needed a chance to grieve, or, well, at least work through some pretty complicated feelings. But unfortunately, there was just no time. As the wife of one emperor and the mother of two others, Julia knew she had to act quickly to protect both herself and her family. The only expression she gave her pain was striking herself hard in the chest—an act that, according to Dio, reactivated an old tumor. Then, once again, Julia was forced to put grief aside and go into full Cersei Lannister mode. Though Caracalla never planned for succession, Julia must have given it some thought. Rome being Rome, she could never rule outright, but she could rule, in all but name, through a suitable male relative. Unfortunately, her best option, her esteemed brother-in-law, Avidus Alexianus, had just died in Cyprus at the age of 62. The husband of Julia's niece, Sextus Varius Marcellus, had died two years earlier after serving as governor of Numidia. Their widows, Julia Mesa and Julia Soemius Bassiana, had retired to Emesa along with Bassiana's son Elagabalus. The husband of Julia's other niece, Gessius Marcianus, was only an equestrian, with too modest a career for a suitable emperor. Rounding out the list was Julia's 27-year-old cousin, Uranius Antoninus. The grandson of her father's brother Iamblichus, but his connection was too remote for serious consideration. Unfortunately, this left Julia with Elagabalus. Since the death of Julia's father, Julius Bassianus, the boy had been serving as high priest of Elagabal. His family was of senatorial rank, and he was second cousin to Caracalla but there was no ignoring the elephant in the room. Elagabalus was only 14, which meant trying to pitch an imperial regency, a concept that really had no precedent in Rome. Over the next few days, messengers brought Caracalla's ashes, which were sent on to the capital, along with an update from Edessa. Adventus had refused acclamation as emperor, and on april eleventh the troops had elevated his colleague, the man Julie had been warned about, Marcus Apellius Macrinus. Prophecy aside, he was basically a nobody. An equestrian and a provincial, a lawyer and a bureaucrat, who'd been given his current posting by Caracalla. The one factoid Julia knew wouldn't have given her much comfort. Macrinus was the protege of her old nemesis, Plautianus. The first letter from Macrinus was full of kind words, and Julia was allowed to retain her bodyguard and royal suites in Antioch. Sensing his weakness, Julia gave him no reply, but told everyone she knew that he was a treacherous usurper. She also reached out to key Roman officers, reminding them of their excellent treatment under her husband and son. But if Elagabalus was the only alternative, they were understandably dubious. Even putting aside the impending war with Parthia, the concept of elevating a young boy to Roman emperor was a very, very tough sell. Yes, even a Severan boy, and yes, even with legionary support. The second letter from Macrinus was less respectful and more direct. Julia was to leave Antioch and go peaceably into retirement, likely with her sister's family in Emesa. But the final hammer blow landed in early July— when Julia got word of Rome's reaction to Caracalla's death. The Senate and people were understandably ecstatic, and ready to give Macrinus at least the benefit of the doubt. The new emperor had even bolstered his credentials by elevating a senator and ex-consul named Aurelianus to be his Caesar julia had spent her wildfire, played all her cards, and had no more room to maneuver. There was only one thing over which she had absolute control, the exact time and manner of her death. Julia was young, but she was already dying, of breast cancer, according to Dio. She'd watched her husband expire in bed, and her youngest butchered in her lap but the example that gave her strength may have been her friend Fadilla, or even her distant ancestor Cleopatra. In the end, Julia Domna, the first Syrian empress of Rome, remained in Antioch in her royal quarters and starved herself to death. Julia's ashes were interred in an unusual location, the Augustan Mausoleum in Rome. As an Antonine, even an adopted Antonine, her proper place was with her husband and son in the Mausoleum of Hadrian, the modern Castle San Angelo. But Macrinus was already styling himself an Antonine, while trying to keep the Severins at arm's length, so the Augustan Mausoleum was deemed a suitable compromise. Like her famous predecessor, Livia Augusta, Julia was deified as the Divine Julia, the first female heir of Antony and Cleopatra to become, in Roman eyes, a god.